Howdy. Today's episode is a replay of one of Sue and Ann's can't-miss episodes. Enjoy. Now, I am not saying in any way that relationships are not healing, because they totally are. But it's not the relationship's responsibility to heal our wounds. It's our responsibility to do that U-turn, to look inside and heal. Because I think we heal internally. And I think relationship is very healing. So for me, it's an and, not an or. But you can't eliminate the self to part healing that is required. And attachment wounding can be healed. You know, then you choose a person because they're interesting, not because you need them to fix or heal your little boy or your little girl who didn't quite get the love that they needed, in part. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Welcome, Frank Anderson, to Therapist Uncensored. We are super excited to have you. Our listeners are going to just love this. Really learning more about IFS and how it overlaps and coordinates with many of the treatment modalities we've talked about here, but attachment in particular, it's going to be fun. Okay, great. Sounds exciting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, attachment's a big deal in the work that I do for sure as a kind of complex PTSD focused therapist. So it's right up my alley. Absolutely. I'm so glad about it. So you are a psychiatrist that studied with Vanderkolk, I understand, but then have been able to weave together psychopharmacology, trauma, neuroscience, attachment, and internal family systems. Is that right? <laughs> yes, That's, it sounds quite like... <laughs> it's amazing. It, it's amazing. Yeah. It's unearthing a, a treasure. <laughs> Well, and it's an interesting journey because it is unusual to be a psychiatrist and be a psychotherapist. That doesn't even exist that much anymore, right? So that in that way, I'm kind of unique. But I was lucky enough to do my residency program at Harvard at Massachusetts Mental Health Center, which was this very strange combination of a public hospital with all these Harvard-trained psychoanalysts. So we were learning psychotherapy on the chronically mentally ill with our supervisors being all these highbrow Boston analysts, right? And it just so happened that Bessel van der Kolk had his trauma center at my residency program. So I got exposed to him early on. This is way back in 1992. And sitting down and talking to people with chronic mental illness, like, surprise, they all have trauma histories. Mm -hmm. So it was just, you know, just a natural fit for me. And then I started to becoming the trauma the psychiatrist for the trauma center when I left my residency program. So I stayed on with Bessel and became the psychiatrist for them, but was also doing psychotherapy because Bessel is very much into kind of not meds only or even anti-meds sometimes, you know, uh, depending on the med. And so we learned all these new innovative treatments. I was one of the first people to be trained in EMDR, for example. We did the EMDR Prozac study where I was a psychiatrist giving everybody Prozac while all my colleagues were giving people EMDR. So 
very innovative very early on, which was wonderful. So I, I loved that. And I didn't like to just give medicines anyways. I'm a super social person. And so it was a good fit for me. And then every year I would do a workshop for Bessel's annual trauma conference. This past year, it was the 33rd annual trauma conference that Bessel holds. It's like a, a who's who in the trauma field, really. And Dick, he invited Dick Schwartz, I believe, around 2004 to do a workshop. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go to this workshop. You know, and he's, of course, the founder of IFS. And it was a, one of those kind of aha moments for me because I had been working with parts. I'd been working with DID for a while. And there was something about IFS that just completed the package for me when I kind of dove in and became all things IFS. And after I did level one, level two, level three, all these kind of trainings, Dick and I had become friends. And he said, would you create a trauma training for IFS? Because we don't have one yet. You know, he was doing the work, but there was not a formal training. So I created a five-day curriculum on IFS, trauma, and neuroscience, which I still teach to this day. So it really was a beautiful kind of integration of all the things I loved. And it's super popular and people are really, you know, benefiting from it and then wrote a book on the combination of all that stuff too. Highly recommend that it will be linked in our show notes and along with other resources for internal family systems. Let's back up just half a step. Can you say a little bit about what internal family systems is for folks that aren't familiar and then we can build from there? You know, it's kind of funny because I, you know, back in the day when we were traveling all over the world and doing live workshops, I would do tons of workshops and always get into that one of those hotel room kind of venues and say, hello, everybody. I'm Frank Anderson. I'm here to teach about internal family systems. And this is not family therapy. Like, so if <laughs> this is what you came for, have a good day. <laughs> it's such a confusing name, interestingly enough. You know, Dick Schwartz is a family therapist by trade. We had so many marketing people try to help us change the name. Like, and, you know, finally, they just you say IFS, you know, just like AT&T is just AT&T. People don't even okay. know what it stands for. So internal family systems is rooted in family therapy, but it's an individual therapy, really. It can be used in groups. It can be used in a lot of different settings. It can be used in corporations. But basically, the premise is we all have multiple systems within us, within our psyches that are organized together. And sometimes those systems work smoothly together. And sometimes those systems are at odds with each other, just like a corporation or a business or a family, which is what Dick found out. And that within each system, there are multiple parts of us. You know, this idea that we all have different parts or aspects of our personality. When I went to school, parts were pathological. If you had parts, you were considered multiple personality and we had to make you whole in order for you to get better, right? Unifying. And Dick just really had this bold awareness after doing a lot of family therapy work and then started to work with individuals like, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of different parts of all of us and they're not pathological, they're normal. We all have normal aspects of our personality and they either work smoothly together, like mental health, or they don't work so smoothly together and they fight and they're at odds, which is where symptoms get produced. So symptoms, in our view, my view, are the manifestations of parts that are not integrated within the system. So we take biological 
issues like depression and anxiety, panic attack, eating disorders, and see those as manifestations of parts that are not integrated and that are overworking in some way, okay? And those parts that are overworking, whether it's the depressed part or the anxious part, the part that causes migraines even, is a manifestation of a part that's most likely serving a protective role. And these parts will take on these extreme roles if there was something overwhelming or difficult in our life that we had to manage and we were not well-resourced. So we have parts that protect us. They can be manifest as symptoms. And we have parts underneath that carry pain and wounds. And so the whole premise of IFS is identifying the parts that protect us and identifying the parts that hold wounds underneath. And there's a whole process of befriending the parts that protect us, getting their permission to access the wounding underneath. And there's a protocol to healing the wounding. So it's a whole, you know, steps of a therapy, just like many other therapies, EMDR, sensory motor psychotherapy, CPT, all of them have steps. IFS has its different steps. The other thing I'll say about IFS, which is somewhat unique, is that this concept is also present that we all have what IFS calls self-energy, this internal wisdom this healing capacity that is within every person. Even the quote, sickest person has self-energy. So the belief in IFS is we all have self-energy. We're born with it. It does not need to be cultivated. It's inherent wisdom. So as therapists in IFS, you're not imparting your awesome interpretations to help people change. Sorry, therapists you're more helping the client access their own internal wisdom. So it's a very empowering kind of therapy. You have what's in you to heal. Let me help you access it. It's been a game changer. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you know, when we are in our secure self. So you mentioned therapists. So, so many times, you know, we're working to help someone resolve their anxious attachment, for example, or But what this does is like, okay, but how are we doing internally with our own attachment to ourselves? Yes. I call IFS internal attachment therapy. So there's the self-energy, which would be the kind of wise mind, secure self. And then as far as just like the big lumps, right? You know, just for the overview. And then you have these protectors. Can you weave in as you share a little bit more about the specifics, like the managers, things like that? the neuroscience, the system is symbolizing parts, right? It's not physical neuroanatomy. We don't know yet. So we have this concept, right? This concept of parts. I did a project at one point that never got off the ground with Pixar years ago, connected to the Inside Out movie. So for those of you who remember that, I think it was 2015 or so, Inside Out was like the perfect depiction of parts. It was an an animated version of parts, joy, sadness, fear, anger, disgust. And in IFS, we even see parts as that, little people within us, the part that's holding sadness, holding joy, holding anger, holding disappointment. So can I ask something here? I was thinking of parts as more specifically like the protector or the self-energy, things like that. But you, you just describe parts as feelings. 
Here's the way I would describe it. And Dick is, holds this dearly. He, he treats parts as little people inside, like little beings, little entities, and they manifest in different ways. So it's more the manifestation. And some people see parts visually, some people feel parts somatically in their body, some people hear parts. So there's a lot of different ways parts will manifest. It's like, I'm a very visual person. I could see a little boy sitting right here next to me, like visually when I close my eyes. Other people say, I got this dread feeling in my gut. So the way I think about it is parts live in the mind and they're people, like a peopled model of the mind and parts express themselves in various ways through the body, through the neural network. So for me, this is really the mind-body interface. So parts live in the mind, in our imagination, and they will manifest in different ways because they have a body to express themselves. You'll often hear a part say, I'm the one that caused the migraine. I'm the one that caused the asthma reaction. I'm the one that is showing up in your gut or your muscle tension. So parts have different access points within our body because that's what they have to express themselves. They can express in a feeling, you know, if we're going to talk about attachment trauma or attachment issues, oftentimes those are pre-verbal, right? A lot of attachment wounding is pre-verbal. Those parts don't have words yet because the hippocampus is not developed enough to create words to an experience. So most young attachment wounds are implicit memory, unconscious. But those parts still express themselves. But they usually will express themselves through affect, like a big, strong emotion or a physical sensation. So I'm always letting people be aware parts express themselves through thoughts, feelings, or physical sensations. But they're these entities or beings that live in our mind. And we know through the work of Norman Doidge, for example, imagination is a very powerful neuroplastic agent, right? So mm -hmm. the work that we do in IFS, which is very much imaginary, absolutely has neurophysiological effects on neural networks, on the brain and on the body. So for me, it's a beautiful intersection between psychotherapy and neuroscience, and we have more evidence to show the ways they're linked together. That's fantastic. And I definitely want to go right there. But just to clarify then, when you were saying Joy discussed the feelings, you're yes. not saying that every feeling is a part. You're saying that when it's manifest. So if I am someone who can groove into a yes. place where that I have to put on a happy face and cheer everybody yes. up, right? Then that's a part, but not like if it just hits my keyboard of like feeling a feeling. It's more of the manifestation of a kind of a role. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So here's the way I think about it. Like, and I don't even like to use this word, but I don't have a better word yet. We all have normal aspects of our personality. We all have quote, normal parts. Now all parts are normal in IFS, but we have parts that are not forced into a role. The parts that we work with in psychotherapy, the parts that we work with in IFS are the parts that are forced into a certain role, parts that have an agenda. If a part has an agenda, 
like you saw in the movies, joy. I'm happy. I'm happy. She had to be happy. She had to be happy. Like always happy, always happy. Like they did a beautiful integration at the end of the movie when sadness and joy were able to coexist in a, in a memory, right? So it was this integration. But in the beginning, sadness was always sad. Joy was always happy. You know, these parts get forced into these extreme roles because of circumstance. So we're working with the ones that are forced into an extreme role that have an agenda versus parts that are just normal aspects of who we are. Like in my level one training, I was so blended with my smart part. Like it's all that I was. I had to be smart, had to be smart, like had to. And then when I, that part, I got to know it better. It started relaxing a bit. I got access to my humor. It's like, oh, I'm funny too. Like I have that too. I have a sense of humor. Now I can have a sense of humor. That's just a part of who I am, like an aspect of me as Frank, or I could crack a joke every time it gets uncomfortable. I could crack a joke every time it gets uncomfortable. That is a, my funny part needing to be funny. Versus, yeah, I'm also funny. Right. So, so it's, that's it's the, the difference. Yeah. Like it's a symptom versus just existence. Yes. So then the neuroscience, let's track that related to the parts. Just for folks that are new to this, I love how you're explaining it. I think it's really beautiful and very clear. And with this overlay, as you're listening, as you discover and begin to kind of organize your parts, I kind of sometimes think of it as like, let's hold a meeting, you know, let's get all around the yes. table, yes. And, you know, yes. <laughs> the notion of secure relating to yourself and using the wisdom of all of your parts together for yeah. comfort and soothing. And to, if you're feeling unsafe and things like that, very beautiful, I guess, walk us through how the neuroscience overlays with the notion of uh, IFS. There's not a ton of research on this yet. So I'll say that I'm one of the people who has been passionate and interested and excited about this. And I, I ran a, a non-for-profit foundation called the IFS Foundation for six years or so to kind of bring more validated research to the IFS world. Like it's a little bit of how are you going to make this uh, evidence-based therapy when you're talking about managers, firefighters, and exiles? Like that doesn't go very well in the research world, right? It was, it's very much a grassroots kind of model, if you will. So we started to do research and we've done a study on rheumatoid arthritis. We've done a study on complex PTSD, both that are studied, published articles, integrating IFS with medical illness and with trauma. And those are published, which is great. But we started looking at the intersection between science and this therapy, right? And the way I understand it, because I've my history, since I really kind of grew up with Bessel van der Kolk at the trauma center, it was all about trauma. So I've been teaching about the neurobiology of PTSD and dissociation for a long time. So we look at these dysregulated trauma networks. We have that pretty well mapped out right now. It's a lot of people that have helped us understand the neurobiology of PTSD, hyper aroused, sympathetic activation, and hypo aroused, parasympathetic numbing, avoidance, dissociation. So we have a physiological understanding of trauma. And for me, then I start looking at parts from that physiological place. Remember I said they see them in the mind, but they're utilizing these neural networks, these trauma neural networks 
as symptoms. So if a part's, oh my God, I'm going to die. That's a part that's really accessing, utilizing the trauma neural network of sympathetic hyperarousal. And the same thing is true with who cares? I'm done. The numbing. I'm out of here. The numbing, the hypoarousal. So we know the networks are mapped out. My sense, because it's not fully proven yet, is that these parts are in our mind and in our imagination, and they're accessing these trauma neural networks to express themselves. So that's the manifestation that we see of parts. There's all these neural networks. Now, we also know about trauma healing. Like, how do you heal? these dysregulated neural networks. So if a part is expressing itself in a panic attack or a part is expressing itself through dissociation, like we don't see dissociation, oh, you're dissociating. We say, oh, there's a part that showed up that kind of presses the dissociative network to get your attention. Why did that part show up right there? Same thing with a panic attack. You're having a panic attack? Oh, there's a part that showed up that's kind of accessing that sympathetic neural network because it's expressing itself. So this is an issue that we don't, not a big fan of grounding techniques, which is very controversial in the trauma world. Oh, no, this is great. Grounding techniques tell the part that's sympathetically hyper aroused. It's like, help me. Oh, we don't want you right now. We'd rather have you be calm and take a bath or be calm and go for a walk. So it tells the part that's freaking out, that wants attention, ah, we don't want you right now. We're not interested. Or a part that's dissociative, we say, hey, like, let's not be dissociated. Let's be grounded. Let's look around, take a deep breath. And then the part is like, the hell with you. I'm here because I'm needing to be here. Please pay attention to me, not get rid of me. So parts have that experience when we shift to grounding when they're present, that they're feeling dismissed. Like if you think of them as little people inside and the panic attack is screaming, help, saying, no, no, I want you to go for a walk now. So we say, wow, thank you so much for showing up. I'm so glad you're here. Tell me more. And that calms down the part that's expressing itself through panic. We're not trying to calm it down by getting rid of it and pulling for another part. We're calming it down by moving toward it and learning more and connecting with it. Like who here amongst all the listeners gets more pissed off when they're heard, seen, and validated? No, that's not what happens. So when these extreme parts show up, We don't say, go away, suicidal part. We say, oh, tell me more. You're here for a reason. So when you're saying we say, would it be right then to say that you're accessing your self-energy? You're accessing, it's, it's that part that's saying, tell me more. It's two things in that way. So when I'm saying the we, I'm saying as the therapist, I wanna show up as much in my loving, curious space as possible. Oh, wow, you just cut? Tell me more. I know that there's an important reason for that as opposed to, holy crap, my patient just cut. I got to get a safety plan. So I'm not coming from my parts. I'm coming from that curious, loving place. 
And if possible, I'm also asking my client simultaneously to join me in that loving, curious inquiry. Like, hey, Jane, or hey, Tony, can you get curious about why that drinking part just showed up? So ultimately, I'd rather it be my client. But usually in the beginning, they don't have access to self-energy so easily. I hopefully have more access to self-energy. So I'm going to show them the way I'm approaching these parts of them with loving curiosity. And I'm totally going to encourage them to do the same. So the we is, hey, Jane, you and I, let's get curious about that pit in your stomach. It's an inviting joint curiosity, mm-hmm. which is, you know, attachment connection, me, the client, and the parts. And then to throw the neuroscience back in, it's the, you know, you're yeah. acting as their hippocampus in a sense and trying to make sense of it. You know, I loved yeah. earlier when you described just a little piece of your own journey. I think it might be really helpful yeah to really ground this, if you wouldn't mind sharing just a few more anecdotes or a little bit more of your process to really make this make sense for folks. I love that question. You must have done some research on me because I totally share my own trauma history. It's a really important part of my purpose here, I would say. I remember going to these trauma conferences with Bessel years ago and all the experts are at the podium and everybody in the audience is like, I'm the expert, you're the victim, you know? And I just personally felt that was wrong because I was sitting in the audience and I was on the podium and I had a trauma history. Mm -hmm. Like, excuse me, you don't become a trauma expert because it's an interesting subject. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It's something personal. Now, Different people have different stories. I don't know anybody who is free of adversity. I haven't met anybody yet, right? I think that's part of our journey is to learn through adversity. So personally for me, my journey really in mental health started with my sister. I think she was 12 at the time who had her first bipolar break. We were sitting around the kitchen table and she was screaming about spiders crawling all over her face. It was just heart-wrenching for me, you know, and as the oldest born in a wild, crazy Italian family, I like, I had to save her. I had, my parents got paralyzed. I got mobilized. I was going to be a doctor. I was going into medical school and I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. But when my sister had that break, I was like, oh my God, I have to save her. So it's kind of the moment for me that shifted from pediatrics. And I was not even in medical school yet. I was still probably in late stages of college, right into, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. So that was a beginning of my journey. And as most therapists do, excuse me, for those of you out there, (laughs) we're big old caretakers. So that was the perfect start to my journey of rescuing my sister. It was like perfectly aligned as the caretaker I was, right? It's a great defense. It's a great defense. Yeah, We can make a living off of it. Absolutely. Awesome. (laughs) But then when I got into my residency program, so I went to medical school and got into, uh, you know, residency program. And then I started getting into my own therapy because I told you I was working with these chronically mentally ill people who had horrific trauma. I got so overwhelmed by it. I was so overwhelmed. I, 
I would go home and I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't let it go. It was like I was living with it 24 seven. And I shot myself into therapy really quickly. I was like, what the heck is going on? And you know, lo and behold, for me, it's like, oh, Ugh. Okay, this is more about I love that me. Sound effect. <laughs> uh, that's it's exactly perfect. right. And I had learned to push my stuff away early on. You know, I'm in the midst of writing a memoir right now, which I'm super excited about. This is just journey. My family, my history is very present in my mind right now as I review it all. So I learned very early on I was wrong. I was bad. I need to push me away and I need to be what I'm supposed to be. So I had all that repressed and I started accessing some of what happened to me in therapy, which was totally overwhelming for years, 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 years. I was in therapy. I am a therapy lifer. Like I will always be in therapy. For me, like I had to sort out what happened to me before I could sort out who I am. You know, different people have different orders. So my trauma history really affected who I am. I had no real access to me in this authentic way. You know, one of my favorite quotes from my book, Transcending Trauma, is trauma blocks love, love heals trauma. And that is a favorite quote of mine because it's not even really mine. It kept showing up in my mind, I think it's a, a message, honestly, of this process that trauma, life experience blocks who we are as people, it blocks our authentic self. And it is through connecting to that authentic self, that self energy that we actually heal trauma. So it's a very cyclical process. And so for me personally, I totally got in touch with my childhood trauma history. And then understanding that, oh, wow, I'm a gay person underneath all of this. So it was only many, many years after processing my trauma that I was able to understand that this is who I am, mm. and that it's okay for me to be who I am. So it's been a very personal journey for me. And, you know, many years I was helping to heal people because it's really good to help heal people. Trauma can be healed. That's a message I want to get across. And always doing my personal work, personal work, personal work. Yeah, there's no way to emphasize that enough because that this isn't an ex intellectual exercise. There's no amount of reading about trauma. And, and really, we're speaking to everybody, but young therapists out there, you know, so many times we yeah. throw ourselves in to training, yeah. training, 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 because we want to get it and we want to help. Yeah. But there really is just zero way to be able to embody this without being able to go into your own experience, whatever it is. That's like right. you said, if you come to this profession secure naturally, which is quite remarkable, but if you do, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I, I used to say it's like, it's like Bigfoot, you know, you've heard of yeah. it, but <laughs> yeah. Um, can't emphasize that enough around doing your own work and being able to actually embody this and feel this from the bottom up. So important. Yeah. Now, earlier when you were talking about the neuroscience and mm -hmm. you were talking about how that maps to the different defense systems with parts, attachment is so funny because, you know, there's, you have your infant attachment and the ABCD, and then you have adult styles, yeah. but just loosely does from your experience that track 
up arousal and down arousal related to attachment. So we're going to go there. <laughs> because I, some of my views and feelings and ideas about attachment sometimes are triggering for people who are kind of hardcore attachment theorists. I'm not interested in saying anybody's wrong and I'm right. Like that is just not who I am as a person. So this is a view and perspective. Okay. That's the way I think about it. I had two issues with some of the traditional attachment theory stuff and attachment styles. And I know Carlin Lyons Ruth, who's one of the big attachment people. Like I know her, she's here. I've done conferences with her. She's a lovely individual and she's done very important work. Everything's about the mother. All of the attachment research is about the mothers. I'm like, hello, fathers matter too. So that's one issue I have. It's like, why are we not looking at fathers? Why are we only looking at mothers? So that's one piece. And maybe it's just the way it is. It's the way our culture and society is. Men serve an important role too, which I wish would be more represented in the attachment literature. But the more important piece, that's just my own little personal dig, right? As a, as a father of two kids. Right. And it's not a dig at all. I mean, we've spent time on this, trying to modernize oh, the perspective yes. and get it. And we add culture, we add context, family structures that aren't dyadic. Even yeah. we look at gender, Good. all of those things. So Good. totally on board. And I'm glad you're speaking it and, I'm, and have a chance to say it again, because, you know, this research is very old Beautiful. and so it's embedded yes. And so, of course, it is. It's not, I don't think that you're digging. That's why I say, I don't think it's a dig. It's we need to be updating how we think about it and how we use the terms attachment. But please go ahead. Culture, race, orientation, socioeconomics. All of it needs to be, yeah, socioeconomics. All of it needs to be included because there's a whole bunch of different families out there. The, The piece for me around attachment styles as it relates to IFS is where I say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to me at all. I was like, wait, like, you mean 60% of the people are securely attached and they had a good two years with the primary mother and they're good to go? Like, hello, be a good parent for two years and your kids got secure attachment. You're awesome. Woo. I'm like, good. I'll be a parent for two years. I'll dive in and then they're good. I don't (laughs) believe that at all. Like, wait, that doesn't exist. I love um, Gabor Mate's work too, around uh, this ongoing trajectory of attachment with Gordon Neufeld in their book. But also these attachment styles of anxious, avoidant, or disorganized, I don't see them as entrenched styles at all. I see those as parts. So in the IFS world, sure, you can have secure attachment. For me, secure attachment is a part of the child connecting to the self of the parent. That's secure attachment. When you have a relationship with self-energy, that can feel secure and safe. And oh, by the way, that same kid can have an insecure or anxious attachment to a different part of their parent. And then another part of the kid, same kid, has an avoidant attachment to a different part of their primary caregiver. And in disorganized attachment, you can have a combination, you know, this mixture of I love that part of my mom and I am terrified of this part of my mom. And it's very confusing. So for me, nobody has one style. And oh, by the way, we have more than four. (laughs) Like we have many parts of children attached to parts 
of caregivers. And so there's a very complicated interdynamic relationship. I see it, I feel it with my mother or my father, the parts of me that are terrified of them, the parts of me that love them, the parts of me that are anxious around them. And I see it with my kids. My son the other day, my oldest, he was just so clear. My husband got upset by this. I was helping my oldest with a budget. He's like, well, of course I'm gonna go to you, Papa, for a budget. You know more about money than daddy does, my husband, right? And my husband was hurt. And he's like, what's your problem? Like, it's just so obvious. If I need anything to do with cooking or, you know, running this, of course, I'm going to go to you. I'm not going to go to him. Like, it was just a beautiful example of kids have different parts with different parts of caregivers. And he was just so clear about it. He's like, don't take it personally. It just is the way it is. So I believe in this part-to-part interaction in all relationships. And the avoidant, the anxious, and the disorganized attachment, for me, are not set in stone. Those are relational attachment threads that can be healed through therapy. It's not like a sentence for life. Yeah. I can't tell you how much you're speaking to the choir here. The whole podcast is actually about moving it from category to spectrum And this is the way we talk about it is that like, we might tend to lean in certain directions, lean more, you know, dismissing, especially when we get stressed, or we might lean towards upregulation and anxiety and, you know, externalization. And that is significant. And we want to know that, but it's not about labeling. No. And what I would say about the leaning toward exactly is that that's when protectors get activated because the wound has been triggered. Those leaning towards or those propensities for one style or the other, one part or the other is the sign, oh, the wound has been triggered. That's my awareness, like something got triggered that needs to be healed. So let's move towards that protective part that's activated right now. Let's get to know it and let's heal who's under it because there's a healing there that is possible. So those leanings are not just important and interesting, they're clues that something needs to happen. There's healing that needs to occur because for me, and this is what I say when I talk about couples or adult intimate relationships, most adult yearnings are due to our young unhealed attachment wounds. Okay, that we're seeking somebody because our wounds are looking for redemption. They want to be helped. So we're picking, oh, you're going to be the mother I never had. You're going to be the father I never had. Like there's always this seeking of redemption from our young wounds. And what ends up happening is you enter an intimate relationship and then you seek this person and then you're pissed off at them because they're not who you thought they would be. 50% divorce rate. Hello. And that's because instead of seeking it from the other person, oh, they're going to help me. The real work from my perspective is, okay, seek it. That's what attraction is. Get triggered and activated and then do your work because it's about healing the wounds that you were trying to resolve with the partner you picked. Now, I am not saying in any way that relationships are not healing because they totally are. 
but it's not the relationship's responsibility to heal our wounds. It's our responsibility to do that U-turn, to look inside and heal. Because I think we heal internally and I think relationship is very healing. So for me, it's an and, not an or, but you can't eliminate the self to part healing that is required and attachment wounding can be healed. You know, then you choose a person because they're interesting, not because you need them to fix or heal your little boy or your little girl who didn't quite get the love that they needed in part. I completely agree. And this is part of why I think that our audience has been IFS, IFS, like roll in IFS, that we even use color rather than preoccupied and whatever, because it's gradient. And also it's morally, it's morally neutral. It's not about insecurity. So I hear your language, like the old psychoanalytic could have been repeating your resistant, you're just reenacting, you know, like there's ways that unintentionally there's a lot of pathology around. Yes. And I really, really hear with IFS, the importance of, it's just very non-shaming, inclusive, all the things, which then is regulating, which in the regulation, then it's, you know, that's goes back to security or grounded self or self energy. So it's really, really beautiful. Let me take it to the next layer for us because there is, and this is a piece that's important for me too. There is healing that can occur. It's different than regulating, calming, connecting, important, but it's not the end of the story from my perspective. And this is something that a lot of therapists, and you know, especially as I'm moving out into the general public, because I want to bring this message outside of the psychotherapy realm into the general public, is that healing is possible. There is a release and a transformation from our wounds. That is a thing that I think not everybody knows how to do and not everybody's aware of. But it's a message for me that's important is that once you have that internal connection, once you have a safe therapeutic relationship or even safe relationships in your life, that's not the end of the story. There is that internal work of going to those wounded places, those wounded parts of you that hold memories from the past that are painful, that have not been released. And, you know, there is a way IFS has its steps of release. I won't go over those steps, but I'm going to tell you some key components that I believe are IFS informed that are required for healing and releasing trauma. And I'll also tell you a little bit about the neuroscience attached to it. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. For me, the core components of healing, and I call this the arc of healing, is a witnessing component. There needs to be the part that's wounded sharing the story. It needs to share the story because it's holding something important. It's holding something painful and powerful from the past. Once it shares it, it doesn't need to hold it anymore. So it's the sharing is an important component. The second key element for me is a disconfirming or corrective experience. So that the part that holds the pain has a corrective experience. Now that ideally could be with the self, self to part, or it could be relationally. So there needs to be, oh, this isn't always the way it is, or oh, this is how it feels when I am loved. So for me, a corrective or disconfirming of the old way 
needs to happen. Once those two occur, then there's a release and transformation. Okay, I don't need to hold it anymore. I can let it go. So then there's a real like release and let go. It's an energy transfer. The energy of that painful experience gets released, is no longer held within. And that makes a huge difference in our internal system. Norman Doidge talks about the steps of neuroscience that he describes on neuroplasticity. So there's Norman Doidge's way of working through rewiring neural networks. Okay, at the neural network level, I said all these parts use the neural networks to express themselves. And there's another piece of science called memory reconsolidation, which Bruce Eckert talks about. He didn't do the original research on, but it's rewiring the neural networks at the synaptic level in implicit memory, which is where wounds are often held. So there's science to back the healing process here. And I see that in the work that I do, going to that deeper level. And you can hear people do things like this. <sighs> like there's a fit, you just watch them when you're doing the healing process and there's a physiological thing that happens. And I'm glad that there's neuroscience to back some of the things that we see because there is a change. Like when you do that kind of healing work, you don't get triggered anymore. You're mm -hmm. different in the world. You're not carrying yeah, it's permanent. those. It's a permanent healing that's mm -hmm. very powerful. So it's an important message for me, for someone who does have a trauma history is yes, healing is possible. Yes, there's neuroscience to back some of the ways we think this can happen. I'm going to say IFS is not the only way to do it. IFS is one of the ways. For me, it's a very complete model and it works very well with who I am and the way I see healing for trauma. But I want people to know healing is possible. I love that as a repeating theme. And I want to get into just as we kind of turn the corner on more about IFS as a, you know, the training and things like that. But I yeah. do want to mention to the listeners, Bruce Eckert, we do have a um, an interview with him in a previous episode. So we will also link that. Yeah. And again, everything that you're saying, it totally tracks. And I do think it does feel like it's tracking with the neuroscience in the sense of it, moving it from that subcortical fragmented place. Yeah. If it stays there, which, you know, if we just sort of barely remember it and push it down and push it down, it's just stays there like a little, you know, yeah. rock <laughs> when you do have that transformative experience you get that exactly what you're doing that, you know, people will talk about bottom up and there's a ton of trauma therapists that listen. So no matter where we start, we kind of end up in, in a similar place, whether we're talking yeah. about IFS or EMDR or all yeah. the different Pat Ogden has been on to me, when we start from all these different places and end up in the same place, it's like, there yeah. this is rock solid. This is science yeah. that works. And then there's the beautiful art of how you get there and how you explain it to folks that are just coming on board. We also have a lot of listeners that are not therapists and we welcome that, which will lead me into the next question around is IFS specific to mental health professionals to become an IFS practitioner? Yeah, that's a really interesting, complicated question. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just that? keep going there. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. That's I mean, okay. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I so 
Vic Schwartz, the founder, always said, I want to bring IFS to the world. I want to bring IFS to the world. And so he said, let any, way back in the day before IFS trainings were nearly impossible to get into because it's, there's like, I don't 10,000 people on the waiting list right now. It's crazy. You, you know, they have a lottery system. It's really hard to get in. You know, a lot of, I'm doing, I do a lot of trainings because people can't get into trainings. There's a lot of people doing trainings out there. So there's ways to learn it without doing an official level one training and the Institute's working really hard to increase the amount of training so that people can do the official training. But Dick is open to everybody and that got complicated. Architects and elevator operators are doing IFS and calling themselves IFS therapists. So he opened it up to everybody and it was a little bit, it got a little scary there for a while. Like, wait a minute, we're letting people heal trauma and they don't have any formal training. So the Institute is really looking at this, but right now, and I know they're revamping their guidelines, but right now you can be an IFS certified therapist, go through the training process and get certified as a therapist in IFS. And they have a practitioner track. So they have a track for people who are not licensed mental health counselors who can be practitioners. Now they're setting up guidelines around who can do what and what's a reasonable thing to do. You know, I'm working with people who are coaches now in the coaching world. And that's a whole world of, you know, I'm a coach, so I can call myself a coach and I can heal trauma because I'm a coach, right? What does that mean? Now there's some amazingly qualified coaches and there's some amazing qualified therapists and there's some really bad coaches and really bad therapists, right? So the regulation of these things is important. My working guideline right now is I teach a lot of workshops. I want to teach people about the IFS principles. I want people to get comfortable working with protective parts because they're what causes a lot of trouble. And if the deeping trauma healing needs to happen, send somebody to a trained professional. This is my stance. I'll teach you about the healing process, but you've got to think about whether that's something that you are skilled enough to do, particularly with trauma. I do that. And I am teaching the general, as I just said, the arc of healing. Here's what's generally required. Some people heal when they're running a marathon in nature. Through life experience, you can have spontaneous healings. People heal through relationships all the time. So it doesn't only have to happen in the therapy office. It happens through experience. I'm working on a potential TV series right now with a friend of mine. And we're really looking at, you know, what are the elements required? Like, when is it necessary to do that internal deeper work? And when does experience enable change? I'm working with a group called Kinergy, which is a dance movement program, for example. And it's a dance movement program that I brought trauma-informed movement to. It was fantastic for me to be working with all these professional dancers and really shaping a dance movement platform that was trauma-informed. So people moving through the Kinergy dance platform can do a lot of healing within their body. I want people to know healing is possible in all different ways. And be mindful and aware when you're out of your league, when you're in dangerous territory, when your symptoms are taking over and you get flooded and overwhelmed, go seek professional help. So I'm really very mindful of educating people in the range because I don't want people to think, oh, I can't afford therapy. There's no therapist available. I can't do this work. No. 
but I want to bring guidelines. So bring more awareness because a lot can be done on your own and some of it can't, and you need to go for professional help. There's a lot of healers that don't for lots of different reasons, including cultural, don't have the letters behind their name, but they are incredibly wise healers. And then also that can get complicated. (laughs) And so on one hand, you're talking to the people who are learning about IFS, but then also for all the listeners who are really excited about this, I'm just imagine like me, 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 you know, how do I, as a client, whether we're a therapist or not, as you said, (laughs) we are clients too. Can you speak to that? A couple things. So one is the training organization, the IFS Institute is called if-institute.org if-institute.org is a main training site. So go there, look around their website, see what they have to offer, get yourself on a waiting list for one of the trainings if you want. There's a a year-long training in IFS to get level one trained. There's a retreat style where they're a week and then a week apart. You know, you do it for one week and then three months later, you do another week. There's online trainings. There's in-person training. So you can go to the IFS website to learn more about that. But as a client though. So as a client, there's a number of people listed on the website. So if you go to the IFS website, for example, that find a therapist. Okay, so There's great. a link with find a therapist. Okay, perfect. So you can go to that website, find a therapist. Now this day and age, after all we've been through with COVID and this pandemic, most mental health providers are full, full and on we have waiting lists. So it's very challenging, but I'm not going to say impossible to find somebody. So that's one venue, find a therapist in that way. You can also do reading, like there's a lot of books to learn about this. You know, if you can't find a person per se, I have a number of books. I have a number of workshops. There's a number of books and workshops on the IFS website. You know, there's a listservs each, like there's a New England listserv. There's a California listserv. So if you start searching this up, there's different ways to learn it. I do a course called the Arc of Healing, which is for non-therapists. I have a supervision group I'm opening up for non-therapists, right? I'm trying to bring it into the general public. But there's not a lot yet, like it's a growing field for people. Right now, the best but difficult way to get help is through finding a therapist at this point. There are no programs set up Mm -hmm. for people yet. We're working on them. Which also means going to psychology today and filtering with IFS and then your zip code. So Mm -hmm. you can just look for someone who... Again, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily certified or anything like that. Like that's yes, for, you to that's vet, right. for you to vet that. If you wanted to see someone that's certified, like what does that look like in their description? Yeah. <laughs> so in the, in the IFS website, when they have find the therapist, they'll list whether the person's certified or not. So if okay. somebody's taken a level one training, they can be put on the IFS website. Great. So IFS level one train, you can be put on the website. If you're certified, there's a more intensive process. You have to have level one, level two, so many hours of supervision. You have to videotape a client. One of the lead trainers like myself will look at the video to see what your skill level is, will rate you, and then you get certified. So certified therapists have gone through a process of continuing education and they are been certified by the Institute. It's like, yes, this person knows. Cause you know, a lot of people, like I teach a lot of one day, two day workshops and people will take my workshop and say, I'm an IFS therapist. Like, Mm -hmm. well, no, you took a two day workshop with Frank Anderson. So there's a lot of people out there who 
what I call, what the Institute will call IFS informed, which is different than IFS trained. Are you IFS informed? Are you IFS trained? How much training have you had? Because again, there's this desperation for therapists to get into these trainings because they're so hard to get into. So there's all these other things that are popping up all over the place to kind of help train people, help bring the exposure while the Institute's kind of building up their level one training. So you want to be careful, but what we say in IFS, and this goes internally as well as externally, when in doubt, just ask. <laughs> you just ask the part, like, is this you or is this not you? Yes, ask the person, you know, how much training do you have in IFS? Right. There's nothing wrong with asking. And earlier you were describing for people that were interested in being trained and you were kind of midstream describing that. And I think you were about to say something else when I took it back to clients. So I wanted to get back there about you were going to say, this is for those that are interested in getting trained. Yeah. The IFS Institute is the main place for those who are interested in getting trained for it. And they have international trainings on the website. They have local trainings on the website. And you'll see a bunch of other things popping up. You know, there's a lot of therapists doing trainings, you know, that that are not necessarily affiliated per se with the IFS Institute because it's just popular. People want to spread the word. So just be discerning in that way versus a client who's like, really, I want to, there's no better way to learn IFS than do it. It's a very experiential model. Like, you know, you feel it, you experience it. That's a big piece of why it grows is because of the experience. So, you know, take a workshop, you know, I do a lot of experiential workshops. I'm doing, you know, lucky enough at this point, I'm doing an experiential workshop in Cancun in February, for example, you know, the Dick does them in Esalon or at Cape Cod Institute, you know, there's in Kampalo. Then those are for clients as well as therapists. You know, there's a lot of experiential workshops that clients can take to learn about it that way. So you may learn a little bit about the model, but you can also learn about it through experience. There's nothing like the experience to kind of learn IFS. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking that this long waiting list is people that are wanting healing, even if you're going through the training, right? So people are loving you. I'm so happy to have found you. You know, you've mentioned a few things, but is there anything else you want to mention that you, you are personally doing that you would like our audience to know about? I'm a super busy person. Like I I said to my husband the other day, I like running at this energy. Like I got so much going on right now. It's super exciting. And I just, it's like, I get in self energy when I'm fulfilling my purpose of bringing trauma healing to the world. Like I get in self energy when I'm teaching, like that is just a place for me that is just full of purpose. So I do a lot of stuff. I'll say for people, and I'll show you for those that can see the video, like this is a book. It's a manual. It's called the IFS Skills Training Manual. I wrote this with Martha Sweezy and Dick Schwartz. And it's really a how-to, how-to, step-by-step. It's got exercises, experiential exercises, some neuroscience explained in that. So this is a very useful beginner's guide. Oh, I want to learn more about it on my own? Get the IFS Skills Training Manual. It's a very popular book. This second book is Transcending Trauma. This is really the culmination of all of my work, my life's work to date. It really brings in IFS, 
trauma neuroscience healing. I'm very proud of it. It's been out for a year so far. I do a lot of trainings. If you want to learn more about me for say, right, go to my website, frankandersonmd.com. I've got tons of stuff. It's part of this moving to the general public. They're like, Frank, you got to get a new website. I'm like, okay, fine. Right. So I have a new website with all the stuff on there, but there's a lot to explore on my website, frankandersonmd.com. I'm involved in social media. So I have Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. A couple things that I'm super excited. I just filmed a course with a TikTok influencer. Like I'm in that world now, um, working with all these influencers. I didn't even know what a blue check mark person was once upon a time. Now it's like these verified people are connecting with, which is super fun because reaching millions of people through these social media platforms is super important. And so I'm just did a course with a therapist called Matthias J. Barker. He's very popular on TikTok. Him and I filmed in Tennessee. So we're filming a course that will be coming out at the end of August, really bringing it to the general public, which I'm excited about. I probably am going to be moving my family to LA within the next year because there's all of these opportunities in the entertainment business, which is very interesting for me because Hollywood, the entertainment industry, particularly with Oprah, but not only Oprah, with the Me Too movement, there is so much in the entertainment industry that speaks about the importance of trauma and trauma healing. So it's the time right now. I feel like that industry is onto this. I'm consulting on a documentary about a trauma healing, maybe a TV series that I'm involved in. So I'm really get chills just talking about bringing this message to the world. Like I'm not going to do any goofy reality TV shows. Like it's not about that for me at all. It's about the timing of this message of trauma healing and the world being more ready. And I'm going to say needing it more than ever, that there's this confluence of awareness. I want to be one of the people who gets this message out. With some friends of mine, I talk about the trauma Avengers. Like I want to be one of the trauma Avengers that helps bring this message of trauma healing to the world. So That's where I kind of feel like I'm heading outside of individual therapy, which is super important, but bringing this message to the larger world. The Vanderkolk book, you know, I don't know exactly how old it is, but it popped back into the New York Times bestseller list. It it didn't pop back in. It's been in forever. It stayed in. Okay. Bessel's book. Body keeps the score. And I've been in a supervision group with him since 1992, by the way. So I was through that whole process. He worked so hard at sentence by sentence on that book. It's a brilliant book. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list more than any nonfiction book, like kind of ever, like 300 weeks. It's crazy. It's just incredible. And it's an amazing book. And it really does. He brought, I mean, Bessel is a person who brought trauma healing to the world for Mm -hmm. sure. So Mm -hmm. that's a, it's an amazing book. That's a great resource for people because it's Mm -hmm. out there. It's accessible. He worked with somebody to write, like every sentence is understandable, even the neuroscience. So it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a great, great resource for trauma healing for sure. I'm really glad to call that out specifically then. So yeah, I would put a little cape on you myself, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the Avenger cape. The reason I like the Avengers mentality is that it's not one person that's going to do this. Like there's no way 
This is for a person. This is a collective. You are part of the collective. I am part of the collective. We are all part of this collective. There's no way this tide can turn with one person. So it requires all of us. So I'm grateful for what you're doing. Grateful for all the people. That's why I like the Avengers theme. It's a collection of people that are going to show up and make the change. Everybody listening here on this podcast becomes part of that collective. And the other thing specifically though, about what you have access to like inside out, it gets the message outside of the choir. It really touches people that wouldn't know to be interested in this as you know. So that to me is also super exciting. When I'm moving into the general public now, like there's a group of people that are very averse to the word trauma. Like I don't have a trauma history. That's not me. Like I'm not weak and vulnerable, right? So as we move into the general public, I'm using overwhelming life experience. Not do you have PTSD? Oh, that's good. Because that puts people off, right? Not me, not me. There's a group of people that want to be strong and powerful, not identify with victims and weakness. So as we move into the general public, I'm mindful of words that are triggering or words that are useful. So I'm, you know, over, have have you ever had an overwhelming life experience? Like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a way to bring people in. And earlier you you used the word adversity, that everybody has had some adversity. That also is another, like, somebody could relate to that, you know, because it also, it even implies adversity implies that you got through something, not that something terrible happened to you. It's empowering to the same public. with resilience. I'm doing workshops on resilience and workshops on those kind of words because that's the message of survivable, healable. You can get through this. Sometimes what we do is we create study groups around books, particularly if you're part of our online community. It's as little as five dollars a month. We create these things called reading pods that are these small discussion groups around topics of interest. I know this one will be. So if you are interested in that, let me know. And I'm positive that there'll be enough interest to create a study group around this. And uh, yeah, thank you for the cape. But also (laughs) I wanted to relate to one other way as a gay parent and, you know, from way back in the day where that it was speaking of media news cameras in our house. And we were all just like, there's nothing to see here. You know what I mean? We're so boring. (laughs) There's no news. (laughs) Yeah, like we we tie shoes and change diapers I, just like everyone else does. <laughs> no, swinging from the chandelier or something. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, wear just rainbow diapers in our house. It's <laughs> not the case. <laughs> so really fun talking to you. I think that we've really resourced people around things that they can do. You know, you don't want to gather people and get them excited about it without giving them the next steps. Then you can also find the show notes if you just stumbled upon this at therapistuncensored.com. The easiest thing to do, since I don't know the show number yet, is therapistuncensored.com backslash episodes, and that'll pull them all up. And then you'll see the one on internal family. So you'll also see Dick Schwartz and some of the somatic therapies. We have an incredible archive of resources for those of you interested in more, and it's all free. And I think that we've filled people up. What do you think? I think so too. I'm really, this was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to you and I want people to know there's more to come. There's more to learn. There's more to experience. And we encourage everybody that's listening to do your bubble, to spread this, to keep doing the work personally, keep making this kind of work available. 
It's like, those are the ambassadors too that go and they tell people. Yes. So let's yeah. spread the message of healing and secure relating yeah. that isn't about being secure as a category. <laughs> and this is one very important puzzle piece of all the different ways to get there. That's beautiful. All right. Well, thank you. And we will see you around the bend. Thank you for listening all the way through this episode. So many people are moved by these conversations and frequently reach out asking how to best support us. There are a few zero or very low cost things you can do to keep this content coming. The first is to simply support our sponsors. Also know that we dedicate half of any proceeds we receive to nonprofits supporting mental health access. So by supporting the sponsors, it's a win-win. The second thing is by taking a moment and pulling up the show wherever you get your podcast to leave us a rating and review. The last idea of supporting us is to simply share the show with anyone you think might benefit. All right. Thank you for listening and censor yourself, speak your truth, and especially do so to those in power. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 